0: Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking an apple pie ale. What do you have, Del?
1: I am drinking a Twisted Tea, and in this week's episode, we will be looking at a notorious location in Yorkshire, England, 10 Rillington Place, and the man who created a British House of Horrors, similar to the one H. H. Holmes created stateside. The brutality of John Christie inspired films and made-for-TV movies that shed light on the terror Christie created. Before we detail the events of his crimes, let's discuss his backstory and how he became the monster of Rillington Place. John Gerald Holiday Christie was born on April 8th 1899 in Northam, Yorkshire, England, in the United Kingdom. He was the sixth of seven children born to Ernest John Christie and an unnamed mother. Ernest was uncommunicative and cool towards his children and often punished them for the smallest offenses. His mother and siblings both coddled and bullied John. A defining moment that indicated that something may be off with John was when his grandfather, David Holliday, passed away in Christie's home. Christie later stated that seeing the body gave him a feeling of power and well being. Although his mental state was questionable, Christie was an intelligent man with an IQ of 128. He won a scholarship to a prep school and, after finishing school, got a job as an assistant projectionist. His peers later described him as a quote unquote queer lad that quote unquote kept to himself and quote was not very popular, end quote. The social anxiety was increased with its impotence and failure in sexual pursuits. His classmates called him quote unquote Reggie no dick and quote can't do it, Christy, end quote. This sexual difficulty was lifelong with his primary source of sexual interactions being with prostitutes. No definitive cause has ever been found, and a later autopsy found that he was physically and sexually normal. In September 1916, Christie enlisted in the British Army during World War One, where he served as an infantryman in the 52nd Regiment. In 1918, as a signal man in the Duke of Wellington's regiment, Christie was injured by mustard gas in France. Christie claimed to have lasting physical injuries from the attack, but later authors have attributed this to a possible histrionic personality disorder, which caused him to exaggerate or fiend illness as a ploy to get attention and sympathy. He left the Army on October 22, 1919, and briefly joined the Air Force before leaving military service for good on August 15, 1924.
0: During his time in the military, Christie married Ethel Simpson. He continued to frequent prostitutes, and after four years, the couple separated. Throughout their marriage, Christie was convicted of several offenses. This included stealing postal orders, for which he served three months, starting on April 12, 1921. On January 15, 1923, Christie was convicted of obtaining money on false pretenses and violent conduct, for which he received 12 months probation. He committed two more crimes of larceny during 1924 and served nine months in HM Prison, Wandsworth. On May 13, 1929, he was convicted of assaulting Maude Cole and sentenced to six months of hard labor. The magistrate described it as a quote-unquote murderous attack, where he used a cricket bat to hit her over the head. The end of Christie's first decade of marriage with Ethel concluded with a conviction for auto theft, for which he was imprisoned for three months in November of 1933. In 1934, after being released from prison, Christie reunited with Ethel, continuing to see prostitutes. He did end his string of petty crimes, though. In 1937, the Christies moved to the top floor flat of 10 Rillington Place in Notting Hill. They moved to the downstairs flat in December 1938. The house was a three-story brick and terrace built in the 1870s during a time where the construction standards were poor. The house was next to the above-ground section of the London's underground metropolitan line, and the train noise would have been constant for the residents. In 1943, Christie met Gladys Jones while working with the War Reserve Police during World War II. Her husband was away at war, and when he returned, he learned of their affair. He went to Jones's house and discovered Christie, then proceeded to assault him. The next 10 years saw Christie go on a murder spree. The first person Christie admitted to killing was Ruth First, a 21-year-old Austrian munitions worker who supplemented her income by occasionally engaging in prostitution. Christie claimed to have met First while she was soliciting clients in a snack bar in Ladbroke Grove. According to his own statements, on August 24, 1943, he invited First to his home to engage in sex. Afterward, Christie impulsively strangled her on his bed with a length of rope. He initially stowed first's body beneath the floorboards of his living room, then buried it in the back garden the following evening. Soon after the murder at the end of 1943, Christie resigned as a special constable. The following year, he found new employment as a clerk at an Acton radio factory. There, he met his second victim, colleague Muriel Amelia Edie. On October seventh, nineteen forty-four, he invited Edie back to his flat with the promise that he had concocted a "quote unquote" special mixture that could cure her bronchitis. Edie was to inhale the mixture from a jar with a tube inserted in the top. The mixture was, in fact, Friar's balsam, which Christie used to disguise the smell of domestic gas. Once Edie was seated, breathing the mixture from the tube with her back turned, Christy inserted a second tube into the jar connected to a gas tap. As Edie continued breathing, she inhaled the domestic gas, which soon rendered her unconscious. Domestic gas during the 1940s was coal gas, which had a carbon monoxide content of 15%. Christy raped and strangled Edie before burying her alongside first.
1: During Easter of 1948, Timothy Evans and his wife, Beryl, moved into the top floor flat at 10 Rillington Place where Beryl gave birth that October to their daughter, Geraldine. In late 1949, Evans informed police that his wife was dead. A police search of the building failed to find her body, but a later search revealed the bodies of Geraldine, and a 16-week male baby. The post-mortem revealed that both mother and daughter had been strangled and that Beryl had been physically assaulted before her death, shown by facial bruising. Evans at first claimed that Christie had killed his wife in a botched abortion operation, but police questioning eventually produced a confession. The alleged confession may have been fabricated by the police as the statement appears contrived and artificial. After being charged, Evans withdrew his confession and once again accused Christie, this time of both murders. On January 11, 1950, Evans was put on trial for the murder of his daughter. The prosecution having decided not to pursue a second charge of murdering his wife. Christie was a principal witness for the Crown. He denied Evans' accusations and gave detailed evidence about the quarrels between him and his wife. The jury found Evans guilty despite the revelation of Christie's criminal record of theft and violence. Evans was originally due to be hanged on January 31st, but appealed. After his appeal on the 20th of February had failed, Evans was hanged at H.M. Prison, Pittenville, on March 9, 1950. Nearly three years passed without a major incident for Christie after Evans' trial. He soon found alternative employment as a clerk with the British Road Services at their Shepherd Bush's depot, starting work there on June 12th, 1950. At the same time, new tenants arrived to fill the vacant first and second floor rooms at 10 Relenton Place. The tenants were predominantly migrants from the West Indies. This horrified Christie and his wife, who both held racist attitudes towards their neighbors and disliked living with them. Chrissy negotiated with the Poor Man's Lawyer Center to continue to have exclusive use of the back garden, ostensibly to have space between him and his neighbors, but quite possibly to prevent anyone from uncovering the human remains buried there. On the morning of December 14, 1952, Chrissy strangled Ethel in bed. She had last been seen in public two days earlier. Christy amended several stories to explain his wife's disappearance and to help mitigate the possibility of further inquiries being made. In reply to a letter from relatives in Sheffield, he wrote that Ethel had rheumatoidism and could not write herself. To one neighbor, he explained that she was visiting her relatives in Sheffield to another he said that she had gone to Birmingham on January 26, 1953, Christie forged his wife's signature and emptied her bank account. Between January 19th and March 6 of 1953, Christie murdered three more women he invited back to 10 Rillington Place. Kathleen Maloney, Rita Nelson, and Hectorina McLennan for the murders of his final three victims, Chrissy modified the gassing technique he had first used on Edie. He used a rubber tube connected to the gas pipe in the kitchen, which he kept closed off with a bulldog clip. He seated his victims in the kitchen, released the clip on the tube, and let gas leak into the room.
0: The Braben report pointed out that Christie's explanation of his gassing technique was not satisfactory because he would have been overpowered by the gas as well. It was established that all three victims had been exposed to carbon monoxide. The gas made its victims drowsy, after which Christie strangled them with a length of rope. As with Edie, Christie repeatedly raped his last three victims while they were unconscious and continued to do so when they died. When this aspect of his crimes was publicly revealed, Christie quickly gained a reputation for being a necrophiliac. One commenter has cautioned against categorizing Christie as such. According to the accounts he gave to the police, he did not engage sexually with any of his victims exclusively after death. After Christie had murdered each of his final victims by ligature strangulation, he placed a vest or other cloth-like material between their legs before wrapping their semi-naked bodies in blankets, in a similar manner to the way in which Burl's body had been wrapped, before sewing their bodies in a small alcove behind the back kitchen wall. He later covered the entrance to his alcove with wallpaper. Christie moved out of 10 Rillington Place on March 20th, 1953, after fraudulently subletting his flat to a couple. The landlord visited that same evening and finding the couple there instead of Christie, demanded that they leave first thing in the morning. The landlord also allowed the tenant of the top floor flat Bearsford Brown to use Christie's kitchen. On March 24th, Brown discovered the kitchen alcove where he attempted to insert brackets into the wall to hold a wireless set. Peeling back the wallpaper, Brown saw the bodies of Maloney, Nelson, and McLellan. After getting confirmation from another tenant in Rillington Place that there were dead bodies, Brown informed the police and a citywide search for Christie began. After leaving Rillington Place, Christie had gone to a Rowtown house in King's Cross and booked a room for seven nights under his real name and address. He stayed for only four nights, leaving on March 24th when news broke of the discovery at his flat. Christie wandered around London, slept rough, and spent much of the day in cafes and cinemas. On the morning of March 31st, Christie was arrested on the embankment near Putney Bridge after being challenged about his identity by a police officer, P.C. Thomas Ledger. When the police searched Christy, they discovered an old newspaper clipping about the remand of Timothy Evans among the personal items on
1: him. Christy initially admitted only to the murders of the women in the alcove and of his wife during police questioning. When informed about the skeletons buried in the back garden, he admitted responsibility for their deaths as well. On April 27, 1953, he confessed to the murder of Beryl Evans, which Timothy Evans had originally been charged with during the police investigation in 1949, although for the most part, he denied killing Geraldine. On one occasion following his trial, Christie indicated that he may have been responsible for her death as well, Having said so to a hospital orderly, it is speculated that Christie would not have wanted to readily admit his guilt in Geraldine's death in order not to alienate the jury from his desire to be found not guilty by reason of insanity and for his safety from fellow inmates. On June 5th, 1953, Christie confessed to the murders of Edie and First. Which helped the police identify their skeletons. Chrissy was tried only for the murder of his wife, Ethel. His trial began on June 22, 1953. Chrissy pleaded insanity, with his defense describing him as, quote, mad as a marsh hare, end quote, and claimed to have a poor memory of the events. Dr. Madison, a doctor at HM Prison, Brixton, who evaluated Christie, was called as a witness by the prosecution. He testified using medical terminology of the time that Christie had a quote-unquote hysterical personality, but was not insane. The jury rejected Christie's plea, and after deliberating for 85 minutes, found him guilty. He was sentenced to death by Mr. Justice Fenimore, Christie was hanged at 9 a.m. on July 15, 1953, at H.M. Prison, Pentonville. His executioner was Albert Pierre Point, who had also hanged Evans. After being ready for the execution, Christie complained that his nose itched. Pierre Point assured him that, quote, It won't bother you for long. After the execution, Christie's body was buried in an unmarked grave within the precincts of the prison, as was standard practice for executed prisoners in the United Kingdom. Jenny, what are your thoughts on John Christie and his crimes at 10 Rilleton Place? Before
0: we started recording, I had told you I had never really heard of this before, and it's always so creepy. When you hear about people keeping bodies in their house, there's something just foul about that. His technique with the gassing is bizarre to me, but I guess, I don't know, I guess he maybe wanted to keep his hands clean in a way. And I think the biggest thing for me about this case is it's so sick that Timothy Evans, an innocent person, died for a crime he didn't commit, especially I mean, I guess he was being accused of being like a family annihilator and that was the furthest thing from the truth. And and it's just, it's upsetting to hear that, especially when he, Christy then went on to go kill more people.
1: Disgusting.
0: What do you think?
1: I definitely agree. And I think, you know, starting with Timothy Evans, the police definitely have always had a blind spot and tunnel vision, really, when it comes to connecting a surviving family member with the murder of the others. And the fact that they were just taking John Christie's word and not looking at the fact that he also had access and he had past convictions related to lying, related to fraud and larceny. Like, why wouldn't you take that into account instead of just believing everything that he had said? And unfortunately, Timothy couldn't be exonerated before the state took his life. Um, More broadly, when it comes to he was definitely mentally disturbed in some way. I know that he was competent to stand trial, but There's no way that you go through a whole decade finding different ways to sort of perfect a killing method and there not be something wrong with you. As with a lot of cases that we covered before, he definitely had a horrible upbringing both at home and at school. I can't believe some of the things that they would call him and I do feel bad for that but at the end of the day, he should have found a better way to, you know, deal with his demons. In addition to the victims John Christie killed, he had a Timothy Evans, who he framed and sent to the hangman. Unfortunately, this is not a unique situation, and the criminal justice system does not have many protections for those who are set up in this way. In the United States criminal law, a frame up or set up Is the act of falsely implicating someone in a crime by providing fabricated evidence or testimony. While incriminating those who are innocent might be done out of sheer malice, framing is primarily used as a distraction. Generally, the person who is framing someone else is the actual perpetrator of the crime. In other cases, it is an attempt by law enforcement to get around due process. Motives include getting rid of political dissidents or quote-unquote correcting what they see as the court's mistake. Some lawbreakers will try to claim that they were framed as a defense strategy. Frame-ups may use conspiracy theories to hide the true crimes of the accused. A frame-up where a police officer shoots an unarmed suspect and then places a weapon near the body is a form of police misconduct Known as a quote unquote throwdown. This is used to justify the shooting by making it appear that the officer fired in self defense or to defend other bystanders. The Innocence Project says that between 2 and 5% of all inmates currently incarcerated in the United States are innocent. That means that possibly more than 100,000 people in the United States have been falsely convicted or framed for crimes they did not commit. While not all are indicative of a planned out frame-up, it does show the results of the criminal justice system getting it very wrong.
0: The two main ways someone is framed are through fabricated evidence and perjury. False evidence, fabricated evidence, forged evidence, fake evidence, or tainted evidence is information created or obtained illegally in some way to sway the verdict in a court case. Falsified evidence could be created by either side in a case, including the police or prosecution in a criminal case, or by someone sympathetic to either side. Misleading by suppressing evidence can also be considered a form of false evidence by omission. A false accusation is a claim or allegation of wrongdoing that is untrue and or otherwise unsupported by facts. False accusations are also known as groundless accusations or unfounded accusations or false allegations or false claims. They can occur in any of the following contexts, informally in everyday life, quasi-judicially, such as an arbitration panel or tribunal board, and judicially. When there is insufficient supporting evidence to determine whether it is true or false, an accusation is described as quote-unquote unsubstantiated or quote-unquote unfounded. Accusations that are determined to be false based on corroborating evidence can be divided into three categories. A completely false allegation in that the alleged event did not occur, An allegation that describes events that did occur, but were perpetuated by an individual who is not accused, and in which the accused person is innocent. And an allegation that is false, in that it mixes descriptions of events that actually happened with other events that did not occur. Perjury is the intentional act of swearing a false oath or falsifying an affirmation to tell the truth, whether spoken or in writing, concerning matters, materials, to an official proceeding. Statements that entail an interpretation of fact are not perjury because people often draw inaccurate conclusions unwittingly or make honest mistakes without the intent to deceive. Individuals may have honest but mistaken beliefs about Certain facts or their recollection may be inaccurate or may have a different perception of what is the accurate way to state the truth. Criminal culpability attaches only at the instant the declarant falsely asserts the truth of statements made or to be made that are material to the outcome of the proceeding. It is not perjury, for example, to lie about one's exact age, except if age is a fact material to influencing the legal result, such as eligibility for old age retirement benefits or whether a person was of an age to have legal
1: capacity. Perjury is considered a serious offense as it can be used to usurp the powers of the court, resulting in miscarriages of justice. In the United States, the general perjury statute under federal law classifies perjury as a felony and provides for a prison sentence of up to five years. Perjury is a statutory offense in England and Wales. A person convicted of perjury is liable to imprisonment for a term not exceeding seven years or to a fine or both. In Canada, those who commit perjury are guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term not exceeding 14 years. The rules for perjury also apply when a person has made a statement under penalty of perjury even if that person has not been swore or affirmed as a witness before an appropriate official. An example is the U.S. income tax return which by law must be signed as true and correct under penalty of perjury. In the United States, Kenya, Scotland, and several other English-speaking commonwealth nations, subordination of perjury, which is attempting to induce another person to commit perjury, is itself a crime. Some notable people have been convicted of perjury. Rapper Lil' Kim was convicted of perjury in 2005 after lying to a grand jury in 2003 about a February 2001 shooting she was sentenced to one year and one day of imprisonment. Louis Scooter Libby was convicted in 2007 of two counts of perjury in connection to the Palm Blom affair. Libby was sentenced to 30 months in prison. However, then President George W. Bush commuted Libby's sentence. Former Detroit mayor Quam Kilpatrick was convicted of perjury in 2008. And finally, American track and field athlete Marion Jones was sentenced to six months imprisonment after being found guilty of two counts of perjury in 2008. Jenny, what are your thoughts on frame jobs and the other ways people try to subvert the criminal justice system?
0: It's so frustrating to hear about and to see happen. Um, You know, when innocent people are framed for something they didn't commit, it's not something we've talked about too much on the podcast. The only case I can really think of is Julius Jones, where someone he, you know, he feels that he was set up by a friend of his. But I'm curious. As to how often I guess it does happen, I mean, the Innocence Project says that there's probably around 100,000 people in the U.S. that have been falsely convicted. So like we said, what percentage is a frame up? I mean, it's even more disgusting when law enforcement is involved. I'm sure that's even like next to impossible to improve, but we know what happens. We know that there is horrible corruption in that system. I thought it was pretty interesting to hear about the perjury and falsified evidence and hearing about the penalties for that. I mean, in Canada, you can get like up to 14 years for perjury. That's crazy. and I mean, I'm sure that's something that happens constantly, especially in criminal cases, um, you know, with people looking out for their loved ones and whatnot. I don't remember Little Kim uh, going off of the people, famous people convicted of perjury. I don't remember any of these. I mean, the Little Kim one is probably the one I would be most familiar with, but I don't remember that happening. Actually, maybe I do remember that happening now that now that uh, the gears are rolling, but yeah, it's people lie all the time whether it's about serious things or not so it it is just interesting to see how it does sometimes play out in you know a court of law and in our legal system what do you think
1: yeah it's definitely interesting when it comes to perjury because i think in a lot of ways people expect others to lie especially when self-preservation is a factor And perjury kind of, it goes after that natural human instinct to want to protect yourself. But it definitely makes sense because you don't want people getting on the witness stand and just lying or not sharing all of the facts that are relevant to a case. I agree that when the police do frame-ups, it's definitely breaking of the trust that people are supposed to have in police officers. And because they're typically not held liable for any crimes, it makes it even harder for victims of this to get justice. I did find it interesting that they had mentioned a correcting of what people see as the court's mistake. I think we've seen that in another way where the police seem sort of extra motivated to convict a person that was found non-guilty of a crime. O.J. Simpson springs to mind for me. They couldn't get him on the double homicide. And so they ended up arresting him for like armed robbery or something like that. And so I think that's an interesting aspect of the lens that police and prosecutors will go through Just to uh, get someone in jail that they feel should be there.
0: He's another one that, you know, claimed that he was also set up, too.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And one of the detectives on his case was convicted of perjury.
0: We do have an episode on that if anyone uh, would like to hear our thoughts and um, a look at that case. Very famous case of the century, as some people say. 10 Rillington Place, like H.H. Holmes's house, has been termed a house of horrors. These are homes that have become intertwined with the atrocities that have taken place in them. The first that we'll look at is 25 Cromwell Street. This is the location where Fred and Rosemary West committed their crimes. On January 29, 1972, Fred and Rosemary married. Several months later, with Rose pregnant with her second child, the couple moved from Midland Road to an address nearby, 25 Cromwell Street. Shortly after giving birth to her second child, Rose began to work as a prostitute operating from an upstairs room at their residence and advertising her services in a local contact magazine. Fred encouraged Rose to seek clients in Gloucester's West Indian community through these advertisements. When engaging in sexual relations with women, Rose would gradually increase the level of brutality to which she subjected her partner with acts such as partially suffocating her partner. All the victims were young women. At least eight of these murders involved the West's sexual gratification and included rape, bondage, torture, and mutilation. The victims' dismembered bodies were typically buried in the cellar or garden of the West residence in Gloucester which became known as the quote-unquote House of Horrors. Fred is known to have committed at least two murders on his own. Rose is known to have murdered Fred's stepdaughter Charmaine. The couple was arrested and charged in 1994. Fred fatally asphyxiated himself while detained on remand at H.M. Prison Birmingham on January 1, 1995, at which time he and Rose were jointly charged with nine murders and he with three further murders. In November 1995, Rose was convicted of 10 murders and sentenced to 10 life terms with a whole life order. Police firmly believe the West were responsible for further unsolved murders and disappearances.
1: The second case is that of the Turpin family. The Turpin case involved the maltreatment of children and dependent adults by their parents, David and Louise Turpin of Paris, California. The ages of the 13 victims ranged from 2 years old to 29. On January 14, 2018, one of the children, 17-year-old Jordan Turpin, escaped the family home and called local police, who then raided the residence and discovered disturbing evidence. Given the number of defendants involved, the degree of abuse, and the protracted nature occurring over decades, the story garnered significant national and international attention. For years, the parents in prison beat and strangled their children, only allowing them to eat once per day and bathe only once per year. The older children appear much younger because of malnourishment. The 29-year-old Jennifer weighed just 82 pounds. The 12-year-old child had an arm circumference equivalent to that of a four-month-old baby. Some appeared to lack basic knowledge of the world and had a limited vocabulary, for example, being unfamiliar with what, quote-unquote, medication was or who the police were. In February 2019, both Turf and parents pleaded guilty to 14 felony counts, including cruelty towards a dependent adult, child cruelty, torture, and false imprisonment. In April, they were sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole after 25 years. In August 2019, five of the younger children were adopted by an abusive family who further tormented them. Allegations included, quote, hitting them in the face with sandals, pulling their hair, hitting them with a belt, and striking their heads, end quote. They were forced to eat excessively and then forced to eat, quote-unquote, their own vomit. And the foster father was accused of, quote, grabbing and fondling them and kissing them on the mouth and, quote, the foster family was arrested and charged with abusing multiple children in their care. In early 2020, the Riverside County Deputy District Attorney, reported that the children were living independently, working and going to school, and that one had graduated from college. An investigation for the ABC News Magazine 2020, which chronicled the case for the November 2021 special Escape from a House of Horror, reported that some of the Turpin children are now being neglected by Riverside County Social Services, some are homeless, and none are authorized to use the hundreds of thousands of dollars donated to them. The money was placed in a trust controlled by a court-appointed public guardian, Manessa Espinoza. Joshua Turpin said that he could not access the funds and was denied the purchase of a bicycle. During an interview with Diane Sawyer for the 2020 special, Jordan stated that she was released without warning from a foster home with the no life skills, no plans for housing, or knowledge of how to give food and health care. According to the report, Riverside County has hired a private law firm to investigate allegations of abuse by social services. In a final update, in July of 2022, there's Turpin siblings filed lawsuits in California's Riverside County Superior Court against the foster care agency that placed them in a home where they were allegedly subjected to further abuse and neglect. Nearly identical lawsuits were filed, with one representing the two older siblings and the other representing the four younger siblings. Riverside County Foster Family Network and Childnet Youth and Family Services were also named as defendants in the lawsuit. Jenny, what are your thoughts on these two examples of House of Horrors?
0: they are two incredibly disturbing cases. I honestly try to avoid anything related to Fred and Rose West as much as I can because it is so upsetting and vile to me. Rose absolutely deserves all 10 of those life sentences. It's Insane. And the Turpins, it's such a shocking and heartbreaking case. And the level of abuse these children had to experience is like little I have seen before. I remember when it happened. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with when this happened. I would definitely recommend watching that 2020 special if you can, because I don't think I fully understood everything like how out of touch they were with the outside world the children like the daughter she had jordan who called she didn't know what her own address was she really didn't even know how to use a phone i don't know if she knew she must have obviously known that nine one one meant like calling for help but like like i said she didn't even really like know how to use a phone and then for her to go and do that is so incredibly courageous but then to hear how f- the system has failed them so horrifically just makes my blood boil. I hope they win all of those lawsuits filed against them. And this is the kind of stuff that makes people so weary and like not trusting of social services and foster families and adoption because this stuff happens And it seems like it happens a lot. I don't know statistics on it, but of course the news is going to hear about the bad things more than the good things. And I just don't understand how parents are capable of treating their children this way. It's despicable. And I'm sure if anyone is familiar with this case, you remember the photos of the family, like all dressed similarly at the parents' vow renewal in Vegas. And I don't know, like the way they almost like... I don't want to say flaunted what they did, but the way they tried to like normalize themselves and then, you know, like forcing their children to go back home and having to deal with all this abuse, it just blows my mind. Like I said, I really recommend looking into it. It's something I would like to dive into a little more. I hadn't heard about this most recent update, but like I said, I hope they win. They deserve it. And I hope they have a much peaceful, easier life ahead of them, all of them. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that the more you dive into the Turpin case, the more you're just like, can this family get a break? Like you think that you're free from one troubling situation just to end up in another and it's sad. And I definitely feel for them. And I definitely think that there were individuals that fell through the cracks that Riverside Child Protective Services were supposed to be fixing and honestly looking at the failures of CPS there's a lot of them and it made me think of the Hart family case which for a quick summary was another time that CPS utterly failed to protect the kids. And that case ended up with the parents committing suicide with the kids in the back of the car. And they drove the car off of the cliff. And while I'm happy that that didn't happen in this situation, it definitely could have turned out very bad for the people that were involved. And so hopefully they learned their lessons And they're able to make sure that this doesn't happen again.
0: That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about John Christie and 10 Rillington Place. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the murder of Alan Bono. As always, stay safe.